uh, uh, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, before we get into God's word and before uh, we get into our sermon today and all that stuff, uh, I want to give you just a quick update on our situation here. Uh, um, we've been worshiping in here for, uh, well, I think about a month. Um, and uh, I just want to say, and I'm not just saying this to butter you up, you've all been great about it. Um, th- this has been, this has been a, a, not a great situation. We're kind of cramped in here and you've all been very accommodating uh, about it. Um, now, several of you attended uh, the congregational meeting we had a few weeks ago to discuss the idea of transitioning to chairs over in our main uh uh, fellowship hall, or our main worship area over here. And um, we went ahead and met, the, the leadership team met after that meeting, and we are going to transition to chairs. Those have been ordered. It's going to be fantastic. Um, that, that's uh, the good news. Um, the, the bad news is they're going to be here by Mother's Day. Um, now, before you freak out, we've decided not to stay in here till Mother's Day. All right. We're not going to do that. So as a matter of fact, we're going to figure something out with the, the chair situation, but we are going to be back in our regular space two weeks from today. All right. So uh, I expected an applause, but that's okay. No, no, no. It feels cheap now. Don't do that. Don't do that. All right. So when you got to, you got to beg for it. Don't, don't do that. All right. So. Um, so yeah, we're going to be back over in two weeks. So, uh, this week and next week. And like I said, I know it's been kind of cramped in here and inconvenient in terms of our aisles since there's just the one. Um, and, uh, um, but, uh, we're going to, we're going to be back over and, uh, um, mother, mother's day, we'll have it completely done, but we just, the elders really, we feel like we need to be back over there, uh, for, for space. So, um, let me pray and then, uh, we'll get into this. All right. Heavenly father, uh, we thank you, uh, for Jesus uh, we thank you for your word, and um, Lord, uh, my prayer uh, as we've done this Hebrew series has been uh, that uh, we would continue to just see in the book of Hebrews that, that Jesus is greater, and that it would result in a uh, greater faith in, in us. Uh, I pray that would happen as we continue on uh, in our series. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, Amen. Professionally uh, speaking, there's a couple topics that I really, really love to talk about. Um, one, one of them is preaching. You don't, don't get me, you don't want to get me going on preaching. You just don't, all right? Um, I get on message boards to do that. But if you ever came to my office and say, hey, I want to talk about preaching, um, goodbye afternoon for you, okay? Um, I can talk about it for a long time. Uh, the, the other thing I really, really love to talk about is leadership, and in particular to leadership, change culture. Uh, change culture in organizations and churches has always been really fascinating to me about why some churches and some organizations uh, just change very rapidly and, and others, you know, you could visit them 20, 30 years later and they're the exact same. They've not changed at all. Uh, that idea of change culture has been really, really interesting to me, not just in the church in, in business at large. So I want you to consider for a moment Coca-Cola, all right? How many of you remember New Coke? in 1985, all right? Um, Coca-Cola, do you know how New Coke came to be? In 1985, uh, Coca-Cola changed their formula that they had used since the beginning of time. Do you know why they did that? They did that because in a series of taste tests, they were finding that people were choosing sweeter Pepsi over original Coke. And so they decided that they were gonna change their formula to make it more, more sweet, and hence a new Coke came to be. Now, um, any leadership book that you will read will point to this decision as the absolute way that you do not initiate change. 
All right, new Coke swept in, and um, the, the feedback on it was, here, here's the direct quote from uh, a website I saw, negative and even hostile, all right? <laughs> negative and even hostile. People hated new Coke. I, I, read, I read a story about a man uh, that about 70 years old, he emptied his bank accounts and traveled around to all the stores that still had old Coke, um, and, and bought them out, thousands and thousands of dollars, because he hated New Coke um, so, so much. So um, new, new Coke happened. It, it was uh, eventually discontinued in, in 2002, uh, but three months after New Coke came out, uh, so 1985 still, three months later, uh, came about Coca-Cola Classic. Right? They went back. They went back because the change was so difficult. Or consider McDonald's just for a moment. All right? Uh, McDonald's, uh, when, when I was growing up, McDonald's french fries uh, were absolutely incredible. Um, now, uh, in 1990, McDonald's made the decision to change their recipe for their french fries. Do you know why they did that? Uh, the reason they did that was a man named Phil Sokoloff from Omaha, Nebraska, uh, in his mid-40s, had a heart attack and nearly died. This changed Phil's life, right? And, and Phil began to crusade uh, against fast food. And he became convinced that McDonald's was trying to kill us, all right? Um, he said, I was a student of the Greasy Hamburger School of Nutrition for, for my first 43 years. Um, and then over the next several years after that, he spent $3 million of his own dollars uh, crusading against McDonald's and specifically against their French fries. And so in 1990, McDonald's finally came in. Now, do you know uh, what made McDonald's French fries so awesome? when you were a kid, all right, I'm 42, so if you're about my age, when we were kids, you know what made it so awesome? It was cooked in animal fat. Animal fat's awesome, right? <laughs> so, now, if you don't like it, that's fine, there's more for me, all right, but they were cooked in animal fat, and in 1990, uh, McDonald's uh, transitioned over to vegetable fat, uh, corn oil, uh, to, to do their french fries, and how many of you would agree with me it ruined their french fries? All right, some of you, all right, they're still good, all right, because they're still cooked in, in fat, but man, the animal fat ones uh, were, were, were incredible. And so um, uh, McDonald's stuck to the change. There was a huge backlash to it. People hated the new French fries. McDonald's stuck to the, to the change, but the criticism through the years has been vast. But now, now let's just take this out of corporate America just for a minute. Consider your own family for a moment when it comes to change. Right? Changing a routine uh, with your family, it is not an easy thing to do, especially if you have uh, young children. Right? We buy the wrong yogurt and it's an issue. Right? So right, ch change can be a major thing. And whenever you're initiating a change in your family or in your business or whatever, you spend a tremendous amount of energy talking about why the change is better, how it's good for your family, how it's good for your business. You try to sell the change by communicating the superiority of the change. This is what the book of Hebrews is about, all right? Why I did that lead up to that. that, that uh, the book of Hebrews is addressing men and women and families that had grown up Jewish, and they were used to the high priest, they were used to the sacrificial system, they were used to the temple, they were used to experiencing all that stuff, and now in Jesus, they are experiencing something new. And a lot of the book of Hebrews is committed to communicating to them that yes, it's new, but what Jesus brings is better. What Jesus brings is better. It's superior. He's greater. And that's our conversation is going to continue on that today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up uh, to Hebrews 8. Now, 
the writer of Hebrews in this chapter, as he's communicating the superiority of Jesus, he's gonna use uh, the word covenant quite a bit in this text, all right? He's gonna talk about the old covenant, he's gonna talk about the new covenant, and I wanna talk about that word just for a moment. Because when you, you're probably like me, when you hear the word covenant, you tend to think about the word contract. And you might have an image of when you bought your house, or when you bought uh, your, your car and you sat down with Wells Fargo or Bank of America and you had to sign more paperwork than you'd ever seen in your life. Right? I, I thought buying a house required a lot of, of paperwork. I'll never forget, um, we were kind of in the middle of our adoption process and uh, our social worker said, we had a question for her, and our social worker said, well, let me go ahead and pull out your file. <laughs> I will never forget seeing how much information they had about me. Uh, it, it, was, it was startling, right? But um, a, a, a contract, that, that's kind of the image that you get in your mind of like buying a house, buying a car, all that paperwork that you have to sign. And that's really not what a covenant is because a covenant, a, a contract does not convey the idea of relationship. You probably don't have a relationship with Wells Fargo. You probably don't have a, a relationship with Bank of America. If you miss a payment, they don't call and say, hey, we're really concerned about you. We're praying for you. We wanted to make sure... <laughs> We just wanted to make sure everything was okay. You don't have a relationship. It is a, a contract. A, a, a covenant um, is an agreement between two parties in a relationship. So if you're thinking through what a covenant is, honestly, it's not the perfect example, but marriage would be a better example than buying a house because it, it, connote, it, it, it conveys the idea of a relationship. And a covenant is, in the Bible, God initiates these covenants. He initiates these agreements with his people. And some of them, there are conditional aspects to some of the covenants, if you, then I, right? If you'll remain faithful, if you'll do this, if you'll do that, then I. And then in all of them, there's also unconditional aspects to it, that I am God, and this is what I've decided to do, and I'm going to do it no matter what. There's also continuity to all of the covenants, that God made covenants with Abraham, Moses, and David, and they look different from each other. These covenants that God makes with his people, they look different, but it's all part of the same story. There's a continuity to the covenant, and that's true of our story today. One of the accusations against Jesus when he walked around in his earthly ministry was they said to Jesus, you've come to abolish our, our covenantal agreements. You've come to abolish them. You've come to abolish the law. You've come to abolish the prophets. Jesus, you don't have the authority to abolish these covenants. And Jesus went out of his, out of his way to say on at least on one occasion, no, I didn't come to abolish anything. I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill them. And that is a very, very important word that he didn't come to abolish, he came to fulfill. Because by fulfilling them, Jesus was able to enter into the next chapter of the story. The story that God had planned before the creation of the world. So if you wanna call it the Jesus covenant or the grace covenant or the New Testament covenant, whatever you wanna call it, make no mistake about it. Jesus did not come to undo the Old Testament. He didn't come to undo it. He came to fulfill it and then usher in the next thing that God was going to do. And the writer of Hebrews is going to make this argument. He's going to compare and contrast the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. And he's going to talk about the superiority of the new covenant and what Jesus came to do. So let's start in verse 1. Sounds like a great place to start, right? All right uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And I love, I love it when the Bible does this. But if you look at verse 1, it says, Now the main point of what we're saying is this. Don't you love that? 
because I can be a little bit dense and it can be difficult for me to understand. So I love it when the Bible just says, here's what we're going to talk about today. All right. The main point is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not a mere human being. So you got to remember who's addressing here, right? He's addressing people who had grown up under the law covenant um, or under the Old Testament covenant, and they had grown up with temples and priests and sacrificial system their entire life, and now they're seeing this new thing that Jesus is doing, and they're saying, well, how can you have a faith system without a high priest? How can you have a faith system without a sacrificial system? How can you have a faith system without a temple? And the writer of Hebrews repeatedly is trying to make this really, really clear. He says, no, you understand. In Christianity, in the Jesus covenant, you have a high priest. It's Jesus. You have a high priest in the new covenant. It's Jesus. You have a leader. It's Jesus. You have a sacrificial system in the new covenant. It's Jesus that he came to the cross and died once for all. You have a tabernacle. You have a temple. You have a sanctuary. It is called the people of God. And Jesus is the Holy Spirit and works in the lives of his people. Now the law era, the law covenant played an important role. But Jesus has fulfilled that. He has. He's fulfilled the law covenant and he's moved on to something different. And yes, the writer of Hebrews is going to say better, right? And if you grew up in that system, you would have gasped at what I just said. You didn't guess because you didn't grow up in that system. But, but if, you get, if you can put yourself in their position, better, what are you talking about? And he begins to talk about it in verse three. He says, every high priest, right? Going back to the old system, the old covenant, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest for there are priests, uh, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. Every time you hear the word law, it's that old kind of covenant. And he talks here about the priests and their responsibility to offer something when they go to the tabernacle, when they go to the temple, they offer something for their own sins and for the sins of the people. This is God's grace in the Old Testament. We often think of grace as just a new covenant, a, a, a Jesus era thing. But in the Old Testament, God said, man, the wages of sin are, are, is death. The, the wages of sin is death. But God allowed you through the sacrificial system to sacrifice something, to kill something in your place. It is called substitutionary atonement, that something else could die in your place. And this is what the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is built on. But it was the responsibility of the priest to make sure that happened to make sure that, that animals were sacrificed for their sins and for the sins of the people, that the priest had to have something to offer. Now, verse four is a wink and a nod to what we talked about last week. He's saying that, man, if Jesus were, if, if you were just evaluating Jesus by human standards, the, the Israelite people, they wouldn't have made Jesus a high priest because he was from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And all the priests came from the tribe of Levi. So they wouldn't have made him a priest, but God knew what he was doing and God did make him a priest. And, and so the text goes on and says, so what does Jesus, if every high priest has to have something to offer, right? So the priest has to offer something for, the, for their sins and the sins of the people. If Jesus is our high priest, what does he offer? Every priest has to offer something. So what is it that Jesus offers? And here's what the gospel says. What Jesus offers is himself. 
Jesus becomes both the high priest and the sacrificial lamb in in, in the imagery of the old covenant. So compare these two ideas just for a minute. In the sacrificial system, you and I are guilty and we offer sacrifices for our own guilt. In the new covenant, Jesus is guiltless and he self-sacrifices for our salvation. He becomes the lamb of God that would go to the altar. The application of this text is staggering to me. It is this, Jesus loves you deeply and you can trust him. Jesus loves you deeply and you can trust him. That he would make him, that he was guiltless, sinless, and that he would lay himself down on on an altar for your sins and for mine. The, The application is he loves you deeply and you can trust him. Remember who this is being written to. Jewish men and women that grew up in the temple, they grew up with the priests, they, they, they grew up in that old system, and now they have expressed their faith in Jesus, and some of them, listen, we need to put ourselves in their position, because some of them are now estranged from their families because of that choice. Some of them are undergoing persecution because of that choice. The choice to follow Jesus resulted in their persecution. Some of them have lost businesses and lost income because of that choice. And here's what they're wondering. They probably wouldn't say it out loud and you wouldn't either, but here's what they're wondering. Did I make the right choice? Have I just made a huge error in in judgment? And most people have that conversation at some point, at one time or another in their head, that man, following Jesus can be hard, it can be difficult, is it worth it? Should I give my life to something else? And the writer of the New Testament says, the gospel demonstrates to you how much he loves you. He loves you so much, he was willing to give himself up for you. Yes, you can trust him. You can trust somebody that does that. You can trust somebody that, that, that would go to those links so that you could be forgiven and that you could be set free and you could have the relationship with God you were created to have. Verse five goes on. They serve at a sanctuary. I love this phrasing. We're gonna talk about this a little bit. That is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when, when, uh, when, when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. And we're gonna talk about that next week. You gotta follow the instructions perfectly. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. This is the covenant I will establish with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So he's kind of articulating this thing. We're going to go into more detail about this next Sunday. But in the old covenant, there was a physical place you would go to worship. Right? The temple, the tabernacle, it, it changed a couple times. But you would go there, you would worship, you would go there and make sacrifices, you would go there and hear the law proclaimed. For a lot of Israel's history, it was the temple. And many people would make an annual pilgrimage to the temple uh, at Passover. And they would go there, they would go to the temple, they would offer sacrifices for their sins and for the sins of their family. I I know this is really, really gross, but historians will talk about um, the number of people that would come to Jerusalem uh, for for that sacrificial period. A number of historians, you you can read about them, uh, talk about the smell of blood in the city of Jerusalem because of how many people came to the city to make sacrifices for their sin. It was part of the sacrificial system. Now there's a really interesting exchange Jesus has in, uh, with a woman in John 4, that he's in the region of Samaria, and he meets up with a woman there, and they're talking um, uh, over, uh, around this well uh, about different things, and she perceives that Jesus is special. 
She perceives that Jesus is different. She doesn't know how different he is, but, but she perceives that he's different. And she asks him a, a question. She says, where do you think that we should worship Jesus? This was hugely controversial. The Samaritans, because of uh, uh, religious and cultural differences, the Samaritans had a mountain that they liked to worship at, and then everybody else went to Jerusalem to worship. So she says, where do you think everybody should worship? The Samaritan mountain or the Jerusalem mountain? Which one, which one do you think we should worship at? And Jesus says this really interesting thing. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in, in Jerusalem. So Jesus' answer is none of the above, right? Which is the right place to go? Samaritan one or Jerusalem one? None of the above. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the father speaks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus says, man, a time, he says it in kind of an interesting way. He says, a time is coming and you know what? Actually, it's now come, Jesus says, because I'm here. Jesus says, it's now come when God will not reign in a physical location. But through the spirit, he will reign in the hearts and the minds of his people. It's staggering. It's staggering for people that every year would make a pilgrimage to the temple because that, they believe that's where God was. Or for people that every year would make a pilgrimage uh, and go see the tabernacle with their family because th that is where God was. That worship now has a broader meaning that you can worship anytime and anywhere. Now that is not to say the public gathering of worship is not important. It absolutely is uh, important and the New Testament lays out a lot of reasons why it is important, but let me tell you why it's not important. It's not important because this is the place where you go to meet God that this is the only place that you go to, to meet God. It's important because it's important to gather with other Christians and hear teaching and encouragement and worship in, in, in together, but this text makes it really clear. The Spirit of God resides in the hearts and minds of his people. You can worship God anywhere. You can worship God anywhere. Worship has become an all-play thing, and this is why you'll sometimes hear people bristle a little bit. You'll, you'll sometimes hear people refer to our worship space over here uh, as the sanctuary, and every once in a while you'll say that in front of someone and you'll notice that they kind of like bristle at that a little bit. You know why they bristle a little bit? Because sanctuary means home of God and they know that's not the home of God. The, the home of God is in the hearts and minds of his people through his spirit. We don't have to go to a specific place to worship, to hear from God. The spirit is active and alive in our lives today. Case in point, we have been here for a month in this space. Please tell me you've heard from God at some point in this space. <laughs> You're gonna break my heart if you don't, all right? <laughs> we work really hard to try to point people to Jesus. So that we've been over here for a month and hearing from God. Or tomorrow morning, when you crack open your Bible to read your devotional, you'll hear from God. You'll hear from God in his word. When you go to small group this week and study with other people, you'll hear from God. And the reason for that is he does not reside alone in the temple or in the tabernacle. He resides in the hearts and his minds of people. So we can hear from him every day, not just once a week or a few times a year. Now, now in verse five, there's another difference. He says that all of this, all of this Old Testament stuff, we're gonna get into this more uh, next week. Next week is starting to sound like a really long sermon, but it's not, all right? But um, as I say that, we're gonna do that next week. You're like, how, what, how long are we gonna be here next week? But um, 
that all of this Old Testament kind of imagery, the tabernacle, the temple, the priest, the sacrificial system, he uses this word of copy and shadow. That all of that is a copy and a shadow. So uh, the other day, uh, Sam and I were doing shadow puppets and my shadow puppet game is super weak, all right? I don't know about yours, but like this is what I do. That's pretty much the extent. Right, that, that's, that's about all I got, all right? I can do bunny rabbit, I can do, I guess, butterfly, or I don't even know what that, that is. But, um, so Sam, we got on the internet and we started researching how to do better shadow puppets because you can only entertain a kid for so long with that, all right? And uh, we found this amazing website and Sam started doing these sea creatures. At one point, um, he did a crab uh, shadow puppet. And, um, but, but when he did that, we all understood that wasn't actually a crab, right? <laughs> we understood that was a shadow. And this image of copy and shadow, it gives us a way of understanding what the Bible is all about. The Bible, if you want to know what your Bible is about, it's about Jesus. Now the law is hugely beneficial, but the law was a shadow of things to come. The law was just a shadow. It was a copy and a shadow. The reality is Jesus, who is the law become flesh, John says. The sacrificial system had its place, but the sacrificial system, it's a shadow And it's pointing us to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The temple is an amazing thing, but it was a shadow of this day when the Holy Spirit would be unleashed in the hearts and minds of God's people. Think about that. The Old Testament, as you read through your Old Testament, it it all played a hugely important role in the moment. But at the end of the day, it was a series of shadows. The law, shadowing. The temple, shadowing. The priest, shadowing. And, and it is preparing us for the reality of Jesus. It's, it's preparing us for the reality of Jesus. And now we get to kind of look back and we get to experience uh, Jesus in a very profound way. But before that, it was all just kind of shadows. And now we have the real thing. We, we have Jesus in, in the flesh. And, and it's an amazing uh, thing. So Hebrews 8, 6 shows another difference. It says, uh, but in fact... The ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. Here's an interesting thing. Since the new covenant, the one we're in right now, is established on better promises. Oh boy, okay. It's established on better promises. Audible, I mean, we we can't even really put ourselves in in the, but a Jewish person hearing the writer Hebrew saying that there've been audible gasp, he says, in Christ, we have better promises. Now, Abraham received promises in in his covenant. Uh, They were promises of people, land, and blessing. God said, I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna give you this land. Moses had covenant with God, um, received these promises of um, being freed from slavery and rest from their labor and living in a land of blessing. David received these promises of legacy that his kingdom would last forever. And these promises are good. These promises are great. I would never say otherwise, but the writer of Hebrews makes this clear. In Jesus, the promises are better. Because in Jesus, we find, you know what you find in Jesus? A promise of eternal rest. Not just rest from the wilderness, eternal rest. In Jesus, you find promises of this inheritance that that is set up for us in in heaven. In in Jesus, we find these promises uh, of promises already fulfilled in him. That through his spirit, we find promises of joy and hope and peace and salvation. Uh, in, In Jesus, we find those better promises. And so with all that groundwork being laid, I just want to read, I, I, I'm 
I'm not just going to read. I'm going to interrupt myself a few times. But I want to read to you, starting in verse 7, as, as the chapter begins to unfold, I, I think with all that groundwork being laid, we'll understand what he says now, starting in verse 7, better. He says, For if there, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, all right, so it says the fault wasn't with the covenant, right? God makes covenants and all that. The fault was people are sinful. And, and so and through a series of decisions, a lot of the covenants were broken by people, all right? So he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is way, declared way back in the Old Testament. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them. So he says, it's not gonna be like that. It's not a problem with the covenant. It was a problem with the obedience of people, declares the Lord. Here's where it gets good, verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. <laughs> Controversial verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Who could have known that just a short time later, we don't even know how long, who could have known but God himself, within a few years after the book of Hebrews was written, the temple was destroyed. The sacrificial system was destroyed. It was all laid bare to the ground. And I don't want to say anything that I'm going to you know, really step into it later because this is recorded for all posterity. But it would be very difficult to be an Old Testament Jew today. Uh, borderline illegal. Uh, let me give you an example. If you strolled up to your neighborhood today and you saw somebody sacrificing a lamb on their front lawn, you would call the authorities. <laughs> it is illegal to do that because it is no longer needed. In, in Jesus, we have found something better. And, and even Judaism from the Old Testament, Judaism has changed um, in, in the way that it's practiced because of laws and because of uh, the, the, the temple being torn down and all of those things. Um, and every religion has a different theory as to why this is. My Christian view of it is that Jesus has brought us something better. And in Jesus, we have found a better system built on his Holy Spirit who works in our hearts and, and, and our minds. And we find the reality of all of those shadows. We find them in Jesus. And so the old system, it's obsolete because it's been fulfilled. And in Jesus, we find this system where when you and I put our faith into Jesus, he gives us his Holy Spirit. This verse, these verses come true. He writes his laws into your heart. He writes his laws into your mind. His spirit invades you and changes you from the inside out. And it's an amazing promise. It's, the writer of Hebrews will say it's a better promise. 
It's a better promise than external righteousness. External righteousness to follow these laws did not work because external righteousness is wrong. It didn't, it didn't work because we're sinners and we couldn't keep it. And so God decided to fulfill that and to give us something even better. And that something better is found in Jesus. In Jesus, we receive a better system built on better promises with a better Holy Spirit who works in our hearts and in our minds. And that might be a controversial thing to a lot of people that hear that message. But for us, it is an amazing thing that in Christ, he keeps these promises. Every single one of them. In the Old Testament, he kept every one of those promises. They were fulfilled in Christ. And now he brings us something better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his promises and that he fulfills them. That um, I think everybody would have been really uncomfortable with the idea of uh, a savior and and a Lord who just abolished it all. It's like, you know, we're just done with it all. We needed him to fulfill it. And we're grateful that he fulfilled it, that those promises were kept and that he brings us. It's just the next chapter of an unfolding story. It's the story that you had planned before the creation of the world that would result in a better story from a better savior. We thank you for Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a song of invitation. I'm going to tuck myself off to the side here, and if you have a prayer request or prayer need, I'd love to receive you. If you're interested in hearing more about Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about that as well. I know it's hard to see the screen, but let's go and stand for invitation time, okay?